0: Welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Produced by David Giles, Timothy Neal, Camille O'Dalley, Lee Maher, and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association.
1: It's Timothy Neal and I'd like to introduce you to this, our fourth and final episode in the mini-series looking at crisis and the digital. In the series so far we've spoken to Adia Benton, Jonah Lipton and Susan Wardell and in this instalment, Maithili Maher sits down from a distance to speak to anthropologist Jelena Sinanen. Dr Sinanen is Research Fellow in Digital Media and Ethnography in the Department of Communications at the University of Sydney and has previously held postdocs at RMIT University and University College London. She has published several books including Social Media in Trinidad, published by UCL Press in 2017, as well as visualizing Facebook, published by UCL Press as well, and co-authored with Danny Miller. As she discusses with Mithili, Dr. Sinanen has a research background in digital ethnography and digital media and is currently engaged in several research projects examining everyday strategies, opportunities and challenges associated with using digital media, whether in Australia's resource extraction frontiers or the Himalayan tourism industry. Dr. Sinanen is therefore somewhat uniquely qualified to give some insight into how to do research through and about digital lives and reflect on the possibilities and limits of doing research during a crisis. So here it is, the conversation between Michael Lee and Dr. Jelena Sinanen.
2: So at the start of the year, I guess, what were your plans for this year? What were your projects you were looking forward to? And how has this pandemic affected that? I had so many
3: plans and projects for this year. Um, so broadly, my research area is mobile media and mobile livelihoods. And I've been pursuing two projects in that. The first one is looking at fly-in, fly-out workers in the coal mining industry. So I did some field work in northern Queensland, in Bowen Basin, When I was doing that fieldwork, I was trying to emulate the shifts that workers were doing, so seven days on, seven days off. So I would stay in the mining accommodation for seven days and then I would speak with people and sort of get into what the sociality of staying in a mining accommodation village was like. And the second project is on uh, workers in the Everest tourism industry, so looking at guides and porters and how they sort of conduct their livelihoods and how they sort of work and the role that mobile phones play in that. Because in the Kumbu region in Nepal, uh, mobile infrastructure has only really been a thing in the last five years. So after the earthquake in 2015, state government and private companies put some investment, put a lot of investment into mobile infrastructure in the Kumbu region. So it's looking at mobile phone, mobile media, digital media practices, really in these emerging first five years. So that one's particularly exciting because, you know, we all, as anthropologists, we hope to have our entry point moment. That's going to be, the you know, we, we look for change. As much as we all studied continuity, we want that moment of change and what it means. So that yeah, was yeah. quite exciting for me. Um, but both of those have um, fallen by the wayside, at least in terms of <laughs> field work. I was supposed to go to Nepal for all of April for summit season. Uh, My field site in Nepal is a town called Namche. So Namche is one of the sort of gateways to Everest. It's the sort of first acclimatisation point. It's the point where it depends on how people sort of talk about it and look at it. People think it's a really awful touristy town and there's, you know, burgers and and pubs and all these sorts of things, but it's also the last point where you can get all those sorts of things. So it is a bit of a transit hub and I find that's fascinating. So I would have stayed there for a month. The idea of getting guides and porters and tourists on the way up and on the way down. Wow.
2: So you would have been there all through April. How so are people getting on?
3: My very first instinct um, when uh, when keeping in touch with, with um, a particular guide was if, he, if his season of loss, uh, uh, the, the loss of income over that season, how that would affect him and his family and what could I do about it. Because, you know, he was a research assistant, obviously, you know, he'd taken some time out for me to go there. There's that along with the whole season. So my first thought was, is he going to be okay for money? And is is that going to be, you know, how's he going to do for that? And I spoke with him and it's partly him, but it's also partly just his, I suppose, crudely, his community. They have been through so much more disruptions and setbacks than if we think, this pandemic like like life in three life and I'm not wanting to downplay what we're all going through what I'm going through with these three months of this pandemic less than five years ago they recovered from an earthquake still recovering from an earthquake so when I spoke with him about his livelihoods for the season he was more thinking about livelihood for the next two years and preparing for livelihood over the next two years with his family, with his friends, with the, the informal networks of support, the other kinds of work that might be able to be done. and we're seeing this so much already with you know um, anxiety over savings and in the first two weeks, having a lack of savings and now this impact over two months and a lack of savings. I realized that for um, the, for this particular guide anyway, and his networks, the idea of risk insecurity. Precarity and savings was a really big theme and something that they had thought about long before this pandemic had hit.
2: So, in that respect, they're not more prepared, but I guess just circumstances mean that this isn't the first major disruption and it won't be the last.
3: I would actually go so far to say they were more prepared um, because when I spoke to um, when I spoke to him. In mid-March and I was still umming and ahhing about whether I should go at this stage I mean this is before borders closed I I thought I might still be able to and then I'd hole up in a hotel for two weeks and that gives me two weeks of field work is it worth it is it not whereas he was already of the I completely understand to be honest we've already started isolation life so there was almost more of a willingness to go into isolation life quite early on mainly because um different kinds of devastation has been seen in Kathmandu and in parts of Nepal before and very recently
2: yeah that makes sense so when we talk about the anthropology of the digital or digital ethnography Mm -hmm. I feel like there are several very distinct um, forms that this kind of work takes different kinds of embeddedness that people inhabit when they are researchers of the digital worlds so You have things like Tom Belstoff's work where he's an ethnographer in Second Life, Mm -hmm. um, where that is the virtual world that he is in and that he participates in the society and culture of and writes about. And then there's stuff like your work where you're very much located in non-virtual worlds with people who are temporarily dislocated from one kind of social life that's a big part of their lives and they're in a, another very specific contained kind of social life that's in their life and how they use digital modes to kind of communicate, be intimate, be close, be caring with the other people in the other parts of their lives. So can you talk a bit about to what extent researchers who might have been preparing to do very different projects at the start of the year that are now having to reconfigure these projects because of this pandemic, to what extent can they draw on these different kinds of digital research modes to work out what they can do mm-hmm. with their projects? So
3: for researchers who want to identify, I wouldn't say identify as being digital anthropologists, but definitely identify with the sensibility of anthropology, Yeah, which Tom off is a perfect example. This identifying the conditions of sociality is incredibly important where the digital becomes an entry point and complementary, supplementary, the entire mode that it's lived, just a tool the whole spectrum of what digital means to people as far as it's integrated into their lives and relationships. I think those conditions of sociality, identifying those conditions of sociality as a researcher with an anthropological sensibility, I think that's still incredibly important. However, when our research involves participants who bizarrely enough are experiencing the same restrictions um, and the same impositions of life in isolation that we are, all of a sudden we're faced with a very different problem um, when our research still predominantly depends on participants and the sensibilities of the participants. So I to give an example, I did not feel like it was right to be constantly checking in on my research participants in a way that was not genuine, not as a data collection kind of way. Of course everything informs data, fine, but I did not want to be tapering the sociality of chatting over Facebook Messenger or phone calls to become pseudo-interviews or to become substitute fieldwork. It just did not feel right to do that. However, um, with that said, there's a whole lot of things I don't know about my field site. I'm also located in a media department. So at the moment, this is my second media department that I've been located in. And this is a media related project. So with this Everest project, the way that I'm trying to be flexible with it is that is built on the premise that so much of the imaginary of Everest and so much of your everyday people's encounter with Everest is through technologies of visual, visual cultures. What does that actually mean? So I'm also trying to take advantage of being located in a media department and look at what has the technologies of visual culture everything from from topography to scientific mapping and geology to newspaper articles from the, from you know the the first ascent uh, to 90, up until the nineties where the big controversial sort of you know commercial mountaineering came into effect and then now in this new era of Everest through technologies of visual culture through social media um, what does this say about and another it goes back to another theme that we've looked at in anthropology for a really long time. What does it say about imaginations and aspirations? What is the relationship between the shaping of um, aspirations and imaginations through a historicity of visual images? This is this an is on, no, ongoing discussion. I think imaginations and aspirations are really difficult to research. There's some amazing work about the temporalities of futures by Akhil Gupta and, of course, Apadurai um, with the capacity to aspire, um, Fisher, but how we kind of have this sort of insight into what shapes, compels ac- actions and practices as a result of aspirations and, and imagination, that re- that um, relationship to, you know, prosuming or producing images, consuming images through social media platforms. What is that? What's the nature of that engagement? So I'm trying to sort of use oh, that, that wow. as the the sort of, you know, <laughs> the 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 field work
2: <laughs> that's such an interesting question actually because i feel like so much of our engagement online especially with strangers with strangers accounts does have this kind of aspirational texture to it that's that's really difficult to talk about
3: absolutely and instagram is the uh, instagram has got billions of users based on this exact premise it's about Immersing in the lifestyle of others, capital O.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think the the psychology and the affective of sort of qualities of that are so interesting as well because there's this there's this point where it gives you a kind of internal momentum to sort of be participating in this kind of content or observing this kind of content. And then there's a point where it very quickly makes you extremely deflated. Oh, this is cool, Joe. This is cool <laughs> research.
3: Um, no, but, I mean, it does remind me that, um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a few resources that are available at the moment about conducting research through um, this pandemic, and one of them is a video by by Danny Miller, and he does say that, you know, a lot of some of the best field work that, that has emerged pre-pandemic and pre-visual, uh, sorry, pre-virtual is by default of of, you know, um having field work in one way or another completely derailed and having to you know reorient reorientate again and yes he, uh, unfortunately <laughs> I think that's a trope some... for anthropology isn't it exactly yes so you know as much as we we love to have everything planned and ready to go to the field it's often when all of those 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 plans are dashed that we have to go oh well i invested tens of thousands of hours into reading all that stuff that i can't draw on right now
2: <laughs> yeah well, I mean, my other question is, when should we just leave it? Is there ever a situation where maybe adapting your project to be a remote ethnography isn't the best idea? And then what? Spicy um, question, but...
3: So it is a very spicy question. Um, and one, again, that I hope that I'm wrong, completely wrong about... I am feeling this way about my mining research. That while the borders, um, while the WA borders are closed, and while mining companies, rightly so, are very concerned about the immediate health and safety of their workers, there is not much time to engage with, or um, will to engage with, with, with anthropologists right now. And I don't know when that when when you know I'll be able to pick up those conversations um, when I'll be able to pick up those conversations again, but. Again, I think while I, I don't have the, the research opportunity that, ex, that might exist with the Everest work, I think that there is still, and I've never really gotten to do this before, hate to admit, but really understand and think through what were some of the tropes that I was going to bring to that research. So, for example, care. And care and familyhood, and care and familyhood from migration. What does mobile labour even imply in the last few decades of the Australian mining workforce? I mean, I know these things enough, but in terms of the chronologising, okay, yes, these um, policies were implemented here, they changed here, these had these impacts here. That granular detail that I would normally be looking for through people's lived experiences and lived conversations where I'd be wanting to hear how people locate these changes within their experiences, I might have to just do some book research and some journalistic research to be able to identify those timelines so that when I can have those conversations again, I'll be a bit more informed.
2: <laughs> well, that sounds, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a fine plan for the year or for the months ahead. <laughs> All right, one last spicy question then. Is anthropology an essential service?
3: spicy answer some anthropology <laughs> I think this is a like some anthropology is is an essential service and this is an ongoing conversation about you know how can anthropology be more in, in despite what we study how can anthropology as a discipline and an industry be more engaged with more um, engaged meaningfully with people's lives yeah it's something that came out at AAS last year that we were all in a in conversation about but um the casualization of the workforce is incredibly worrying um, yeah has been for a long time but we're seeing this impact now but also on the other end the you know, you know static permanent jobs that are just taken for granted for you know half yeah. a century as well i don't agree with the two ends of yeah the transience and the stagnation of the roles of employment
2: yeah
3: which is more about academia more generally than anthropology
2: yeah good answer is that yeah that's very good well i can't think of a better place to end than that take so thank you (laughs) thank you Uh, if you
3: want to hate on me uh on twitter i'm at Jolina Sernan. (laughs)
0: You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Bordegiles, Timothy Neal, Camille O'Dally, Maithleen Maher, and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.